Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the May 30, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. And wishing our dear friends a happy Ramadan, Ramadan Mubarak. Today is not only in the middle of the Congressional Memorial Day recess, it is also the first day of voting in Georgia's 6th Congressional District special election. And speaking this morning in our house, that is at the Barclay Theater, is Congressman Adam Schiff. That's the representative of California's 28th Congressional District. The only forum, that's the only probably town hall we're gonna have in the 45th, for those of you listening over in the 45th Congressional Office. It's been a long time. Now onto our program, following the Memorial Day, UCI Public Health doctoral candidate, Pauline Lubins has much to say about the ravages of war on public health. She's seen it all. In the second half, Irvine City Council member Melissa Fox will return to the show to talk about all the burning issues before the city council. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Pauline Lubbins. She's a doctoral candidate at UCI's Department of Public Health. After earning her BA in history at the University of Michigan, Pauline posted a 35-year career as an award-winning photojournalist documenting the personal impact of war and disasters on a, a humanitarian response and global health crises. She later completed her master's degree in public health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg Public Health School. Her firsthand experiences covering war's effects, including the impact on Iraqis displaced by war, the struggles facing Iraqi refugees in the US, and the effects of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan on the health of returning military personnel and their families motivated her to concentrate her studies and research on how war impacts public health. While at Hopkins, she designed War and Public Health, an undergraduate course that she's taught at UCI for a couple of years. For her dissertation, she's now studying grief in combat veterans who have lost friends with whom they served to combat or suicide or both. On this day, following Memorial Day, she joins us in studio to present for our consideration on the most intimate terms the immense hit that war takes on public health. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Pauline Lubins. Thank you, Claudia. It's really a pleasure to be here. I get to experience something new at UCI, which is KUCI. Well, great. I've never been over to your studios before. Well, welcome. It's good to have you with all the important work you've been doing. When we think about public health effects of war in our protected isolation from combat situations, we have this general notion that it's bad, it's, it's lethal, but you are able, Pauline, to lead us through a much deeper understanding of how a society, how the individual must literally deal with the ravages of war. 
the effects uh, include not only the destruction of infrastructure, but we're going to talk about just what, what it does individually. So let's start with you telling us where it all began with your work in Iraq and Afghanistan, maybe in the other order, Afghanistan first. Well, actually, I wasn't. I was brief. I was in Iraq twice uh, when I was still working as a photojournalist. I was on assignment twice. With whom? For my company, Knight Ritter, which owned a chain of newspapers around the country. Uh, unfortunately, Knight Ritter is no longer exists, but those newspapers do. I was on right. staff at the time at the San Jose Mercury News, and I was in Iraq at the very beginning of the war. I went into southern Iraq uh, the second day of the war, and then I was in and out of southern Iraq for about three months. And then I went back in 2004 and was located mostly in Baghdad. Um, while I was in Iraq, my primary focus was on how the war was affecting Iraqis. I didn't embed with the military at the time, um, but you when did. I was, you I did, did not. You did not. I did not okay. embed with the military at the time. And you were able, every journalist is able to make that decision, and so it's a different kind of access? Well, it wasn't my decision. It was my company's decision. Oh, okay. But I was actually, at the time, preferring to cover the effect of the war on civilians. But uh, when I was home in Silicon Valley, between assignments and then after that, I spent most of my time focusing on how the war was affecting the military community. I spent about nine months at the VA in Palo Alto documenting the recovery of a U.S. Army sergeant who had been injured uh, by an IED in Iraq, and he had a traumatic brain injury. Uh, and I did a lot of other stories and photo essays about various members of the military community and how the war was affecting them. Okay. So let's talk about that. Now, I, I guess we can begin maybe on the, the sort of larger systemic level and then work our way down to the individual. So when I think of this, when I've been ruminating about uh, covering this, I, I think of you know the in infrastructure. We're not aware of how very dependent we are on the whole system just bumbling right along. We 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 count on delivery of public services. Those public services cease in wartime situations. Well, they did certainly in Iraq. The first day I was in Iraq, one of the first conversations I had with Iraqis were their lack of access to electricity and drinking water. They were also Iraqis seeking health care from British troops because the hospitals were closed in one case that had been bombed. In the other case, people just couldn't get to the hospitals to deliver health care services. So that was pretty clear even from the second day of the war that the war had gone on, had started destroying the entire healthcare infrastructure. I was shown, we had people who ran a morgue who showed us that they had no refrigeration. So this is an easy way to spread disease is by not being able to refrigerate bodies that are waiting to be buried. So it was pretty clear from the very beginning that it was already destroying the healthcare infrastructure in the country. Okay, let's go down the path of when there's no refrigeration, that means vital pharmaceuticals cannot be preserved, that there are specimens for doing lab work, that all comes to a halt. Well, initially, essentially what happens when a country is, in, is bombed or a country is at war, whether it's a civil war in so many other countries in the world, or if it's the war in Iraq or the ongoing uh, war in Syria, um, one of the first things to go is the healthcare infrastructure, either because roads right. are destroyed, electricity is out, doctors flee because they're worried about their own safety or the safety of their children, hospitals in some cases are bombed, they're targeted, 
Um, this happens a lot in civil wars. It's happened in Syria. Each side uses the healthcare infrastructure almost a weapon against the other side. And so we see immediate effects on chronic disease, infectious disease, uh, the ability to treat people who are wounded in the war, and of course we see terrible effects on mental health, and those services are also disrupted. Well, I want to go into those, uh, break them down individually. Okay. So uh, in the infrastructure, back to the general systemic aspect, mm -hmm. then the wastewater treatment also stops. Yes. And so there's now pathogens that are right. not properly disposed, right. and so we're introducing even another infectious disease aspect. Right, I mean, we are seeing pathogens that reemerge. Uh, one of the um, primary sort of simplest way to illustrate the effects of war on public health is the only reason that we have not eradicated polio globally is because of war. Yes. <laughs> Right. Um, I don't know. Every every so often I check the statistics, but um, for many years, the three places where it had primarily not been eliminated were Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Nigeria, all because of conflict. In some cases, it's the healthcare workers being afraid to go into areas where there's war and they want to vaccinate. In some cases, the Taliban off and on have been supportive and then opposed to vaccination campaigns. In Pakistan, the one thing that really affected the ability to vaccinate was when the U.S. was searching for Osama bin Laden, the CIA, in collaboration with an, a, a Pakistani doctor, set up a phony vaccination campaign. It wasn't a, a polio vaccination campaign. I believe it was for hepatitis, but I'm not positive. I, I've okay. forgotten. And so after they captured bin Laden, they, they did this so they could get some blood samples and, and confirm, confirm that DNA mm -hmm. was actually that was bin Laden's family. So after they, we captured bin Laden, there was actually publicly disclosed that we had done this. And so after that, of course, people did not trust vaccination campaigns in Pakistan. One more conspiracy uh, theory. for Well, one more conspiracy theory, but in, in this case, maybe it wasn't in their eyes a theory. They weren't sure if this was another phony campaign. But so, I mean, applying the, right. theorizing so, that all vaccination right. campaigns are bogus. So. Right. And so that's part of the problem. There's a lot yeah. of mistrust. People in non-Western countries fear that these vaccination campaigns are some sort of a, a campaign by Western countries to negatively impact the health of their population. And so there's a lot of mistrust. And then even in Syria, we've seen it reemerge because not only is there no vaccination campaign, I think it's re it's beginning again, but we see it spread across the border. And we see when people cross borders where there's been some polio, then they reinfect countries They're where vectors. it had been eliminated. Right. Yeah. So that's actually one of it's so easily eradicated. I mean, these the vaccinations that can be... And they're it, inexpensive. They're, they're relatively inexpensive, especially the ones that don't require refrigeration. Um, and they're highly effective. But that's the only reason we haven't eradicated it, essentially, is because we have war. A maddening? It's, maddening it is maddening. It really is. I mean, it's not... I mean, the numbers, if I told you that, oh, there were 12 cases or five cases, that doesn't seem like a lot, except that it ha can have lifetime effects on the people who have polio. And it's completely preventable. Uh, I mean, it affects the ability to vaccinate against measles, too. And that Syria is a case study for how war affects public health. The, the entire medical health care system has been destroyed. And Syria was a middle-income country prior to the war. People have this image that every Middle Eastern country is a low-resource country. Yeah. Um, 
Syria really was not, and it had a robust, robust health care system, had robust graduate school system, and that's all been destroyed. The numbers are just staggering. The, the millions of people that are displaced internally and not able to get health care, and then, of course, refugees who have had to flee the country. People are, each side uses food as a weapon of war, uses drinkable water as a weapon of war. Um, it just goes on and on. Milita uh, healthcare professionals are targeted. It's just the, on a, on a global level, it is the best example of how war affects public health. I used to say Iraq was the example, and I used to use it in my class. And now when I teach my class again, Syria. Syria, you yeah. could do an entire class on Syria. So is it not true that the healthcare delivery sites have been repeatedly attacked in unconscionably more frequent ways than we've ever witnessed in, in history. Yeah, it used to be that hospitals, um, sort of health care personnel were, were off limits. People respected the neutrality of the Red Cross or Doctors Without Borders. Or the Golden And now Crescent. none of that is true. And the Red Crescent, the Red Crescent, all of them are attacked because people believe they're working for the other side or it's a great way to decimate the other side by depriving them of access to health care. So I guess another factor of, of public health affected by war situation is rape. Yes, we do see um, rape used as a weapon of war. And the UN has actually declared it as a weapon of war and declared it illegal. Not that these declarations by the UN have a lot of weight, um, it's been associated with the spread of HIV-AIDS, but people use it. Uh, there's there's several factors. There's one, it's used as a way to uh, almost a genocidal method where if you have a civil war between one ethnic group and another, by raping a woman of that other ethnic group, you are essentially creating, maybe if she gets pregnant, you're creating a child that now no longer is part of that ethnic group. So it's used for... Um, ethnic cleansing. It's used politically uh, to punish people who support the other side. It's used What's a psychological places, warfare? It's a psychological warfare. It's also used in places where women are seen as men's property. And so the best way to really insult or humiliate another, a male who opposes you is to rape, quote, his woman. And so um, it's, a, it's brutal. And the problem is that it's, it's not just the warring factions. There have been cases of UN, so-called so UN peacekeepers who are raping women also. And of course, it, the public health effect is not only psychological, but there have been studies associating it with the spread of HIV AIDS. And for very young women that are raped, the fistula complications. Right, that, I mean, it has enormous of health effects. It can affect birth outcomes. It can affect the ability to even have to carry children. So um, there's just so many ways that war affects public health. I focus, my research is focused primarily on the mental health effects of war. Okay. I'm because these are the most sustainable in many ways. These right. can be lifetime. Yeah. Yes. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And we're streaming all over the world on the web at KUCI.org. My guest is Pauline Lubins. She's a doctoral candidate at UCI's Department of Public Health, talking about the general public health effects where war breaks out, and we're honing in on the mental health aspects. And it's it's more complicated because it's not visually as clear to everybody. So the 
what's happening in the mind and with I, I know from my sort of scant uh, exposure that in Arab cultures where we're talking about where lots of your work's been done and not well in in Arab cultures though mental health uh, there's a, there's certain taboos associated with psychotherapy and intervention that kind of thing so well I, I think that there's taboos in this country as well and I don't think that okay I think it's a mistake to um, to sort of create that division because there's a terrible taboo about mental health still in this country. Certainly we do, we speak about it more openly, but that, but that's also true in countries in the Middle East as well. There have government, I mean, you were, Iraq actually did appointed at some point there was a minister of health who actually was a psychiatrist and he was increasing the access to mental health care. Um, I think one of the reasons we don't see as much mental health care in low resource countries is that if you're going to prioritize your um, spending, it's going to be on acute care, which tends to be injuries and, and trauma, disease that yeah. we can see. Physical I mean, mental health care is much more complicated and it's likely more expensive, especially if people are going to need medications, but even if they're going to need behavioral therapy. It's very, it's very labor intensive and I can see why it may not get as much priority. I wish it did. Uh, and the World Health Organization has recently declared it uh, a major global public health problem. So that should help in terms of it being prioritized. Previously, it's really not been prioritized. So I appreciate your spooling back where the the taboo is. And I, I guess we should we could t consider how in the military, that's really where it's the an significantly an, a, a taboo and where s some will uh, not seek out treatment because of what will happen in their ranking within the military system so that's but it's changing I know but it's still that was it's burnished into the military training sort of psyche that uh, mental health is not not the first thing that needs well addressing. I think the mil I mean I think you're right that it generally historically has been taboo and it's still taboo. Uh, people are concerned about if they want to stay in the military, how it may affect their careers. But I also do think that the military has certainly been willing to address it much more than, than we did right after the Vietnam War, where it was ignored. Um, many soldiers, many military troops before they deploy, soldiers, Marines, airmen, or, or sailors, they do a pre-deployment mental health assessment and then when they come back, they, they do other mental health assessments to the point that I feel like a lot of veterans at this point, if you show them the screening uh, measure for PTSD, they've seen it a million times. They're so familiar with the questions that are on that screening tool. So I think they address it. I, I, yes, I, I'm not going to speak for someone who's in the military because I'm not, but I have heard anecdotally that if you want to stay in, then you answer the questions in such a way that you don't have a diagno diagnosis that might you might fear would affect your your career. Um, if you want to get out, some people say that the more severe the certainly the more severe the diagnosis, the higher level of disability that you have, and that affects your post post military um, compensation. But so I think it's still taboo, but not as much as it used to be. And in fact, some military people complain that. The public is just assumes everybody who's been to war has PTSD, and we see these stories What's in the media. What's wrong with doing that, though? Well, but because we, because we, it stigmatizes them when they apply for jobs. So if they think, oh, this okay. guy has, this person has PTSD, and they may go off at work, or they may not be able to carry out their jobs, or 
whatever they fear might impede their ability to get a job. And so there's concern about the stigmatizing. I mean, I don't know. Certainly a high percentage of people who've served in war are diagnosed with PTSD, but it's not the majority. So it's a fine line between awareness yes. and stigmatizing. It is a fine line between awareness that this is a problem and that we shouldn't ignore it the way we and did among Vietnam it. vets. Right. But we don't want to stigmatize people because, you know, people come back in various shapes. I've met veterans who seem, for all, as far as I can tell, perfectly fine. And then I've met people who have been disabled by their um, their service. So the good news is that we are focusing on it and we do understand it. Um, if I can Please. segue into my research. I would love um, to hear about So that, my research is We know looking, you've got work that is preliminary and you still have subjects and we don't want for anybody right. to be biased by what your your intermediate findings are. Right, so are. I'm not going to discuss my results so far, but uh, I am studying grief in combat veterans who have lost somebody they served with in the military, a buddy, a comrade, to combat or suicide or both. I've been interviewing, uh, from the qualitative component, I've been interviewing veterans who have lost people to both combat and suicide. Uh, discussing how they perceive that those losses. Um, some people talk about the differences in how they responded, and some of that has to do with the relationship. There are a whole lot of things that affect how people well, we experience little, loss. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, and then there's a, a survey component that's an online survey that's really intended for combat veterans who've lost someone to either combat or suicide. And there's a s sequence of questions on there about their military history, uh, the person they lost, uh, the, how that loss, how they responded to that loss, and some other measures. And I, this is a topic that, to my knowledge, nobody has explored. If you do a, a search for peer-reviewed literature, you find very few studies. There was a few studies that have been done on delayed grief in combat veterans from Vietnam who 30 years later are still grieving their losses. World War II veterans are. World War II veterans, yes. Yep. And, but we know that grief has enormous public, can have enormous physical health effects. And my concern is that it's being conflated with PTSD and we address PTSD. But many veterans, I've seen some documentaries, I've seen other interviews with veterans, if they talk about the trauma that they've experienced, they start talking about their losses. They start talking about their buddies who died and how that affected them. And so... I think it's a, I think it's a really important topic obviously or I wouldn't be pursuing it and I have a real passion for the topic because I think that uh, this is an untapped toll of war that we don't discuss much even when I worked in journalism you know if I covered a funeral of a of a someone who had died in the war we always focused on their families literally I mean I as a photographer I would focus on how their families were responding. And their friends that they served with were at these funerals, and we virtually ignored them. And now I feel really bad about that because I think that that was important oversight that we don't give voice to that. And a lot of them, of course, it's a hard topic for them to talk about um, for lots of reasons. These are people who've been through war. Maybe they don't want to show their emotions. Maybe they don't want to talk about something that's very intimate or sensitive. Um, and so I'm really grateful to the 21 veterans who've been willing to sit and let me interview them. And I'm grateful to the other 90 or 95 veterans who've taken the survey so far. Oh, wow. Um, the interviews, I think these guys, 
This is another show of courage by combat veterans that they're willing to talk about it. I think, too, you should give yourself credit for probably availing them another therapeutic sort of outlet to to process all of this. And I'm sure they are all feeling some improvement just by engaging in your research. Well, I hope so. I've had veterans tell me uh, at the end when I thank them for their time, Uh I've had veterans say, you know, it was really good to talk about. I've had other veterans say they want to do this in the hopes that the research will help other veterans. Paying it for them. Some people yeah. have, a few of them have had an opportunity to talk about it a little bit with family or with therapists or other veterans. But, right, very a lot of them have said this is the first time that anyone's even asked them about it. So, Pauline, can you break down the, the your sample size? You said about around 95. How many are men and how many are women? Um, it's overwhelmingly male only because... Until recently, technically women didn't serve in combat. So when I, my recruitment message says combat veterans, okay, it's mostly male. There's some women, but of the women that have participated, one of the questions on the survey is asking them about their combat experiences, how many times they've been on patrol, et cetera. And most of the women who have participated have had almost no combat experience. There's uh, somebody who took it yesterday. I was looking, and this person had more combat experience than the other women. So it's, at the moment, I would say of the total of 100 and some people who've taken it, I'm going to estimate that maybe six or seven have been women. Okay. And it's not that we don't have a lot of female veterans. I think that when the recruitment message says combat veterans, I suspect that women aren't taking it. And I had not anticipated a lot of women taking it. It's someday, sure, I'd love to do a larger study of anyone who's ever served in the war zone for the moment because I'm interested in how there's sort of unit cohesion or or serving in combat creates a special bond that also then influences the response to someone dying because people train together. There's a whole training mechanism that people have spoken about that influences the response. But that's not to minimize the grief that anybody who has served in the military feels over losing a friend that they served with in the military or they were they they may have not been technically in combat but this is a war where people have lost their lives who were not literally engaged in combat they were driving down a road and they ran over an IED you get killed and that's really heartbreaking so I don't want to minimize the um, grief that people who would not literally be considered combat veterans may experience. But at the moment, I'm focusing on combat veterans. Okay. Well, we need to draw this to a close. And I wanted to know if you could just, as the last question, let us know when you envision you might be finished with this and perhaps even more definitive discussion later on of your findings. Well, I need to uh, finish my doctorate by, well, in about a year. About a year, Uh, okay. Unless I win the lottery and can can fund myself. And I want to be done. I mean, it's time. Um, I'm hoping to. I'm hoping to have the qualitative component finished by the end of the summer. I'll continue the survey till I would really like to have a total of at least about 150 people take the survey. The more, the better. The more, the the more power the data analysis will have. Sure. But you know, a minimum of about 150 people for a study that of a topic that no one's ever explored. And for a dissertation, I would be happy with that. And um, whose wh- whose funds are you working with? Well, I've I've been lucky to get some funding from my department. There's a dissertation department chair dissertation funding, so that's funded my travel because I've been able to travel to 
about nine different states, so I didn't have to just focus on California. Okay. But and any, then I got... Any Department of Defense No, monies? no. I, I haven't gotten any external funding. I got some funding from the Center for Peace and... Conflict Studies. Conflict GPEX. Studies uh -huh. at UCI. Okay. That was very nice. So between the two of those, I've been able to fund my travel and fund the... Uh, I compensate the people I interview with an Amazon gift card, and then people who are participating in the survey yeah. can enroll in a lottery to win one of two $250 Amazon gift cards. So I've been able to, that's been really fortunate. I feel like I'm really grateful for any funding I got. Okay. Well, and Pauline, of course, I'm mostly grateful to the veterans who've participated. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we, the, the, no names will be a part of that. No. Interview. And this so when I say, I always worry when they know that I'm a former journalist and then I tell them I'm doing interviews that they think that this somehow we're going to, I'm going to publish their names, but everything is completely confidential and anonymous. Well, Pauline, I really appreciate your coming all the way down to the station, sharing with us your really important work today. Well, thank you, Claudia, for inviting me. It's um, it's one more new experience for me. I've had a lot of experiences, well, but I've never had to talk this much on the radio. It's open for any definitive results you'd like to share with us. Maybe we can get you when we get a, a tragedy assistance program for survivors. Personally, we can have you interact yeah, with them. Yeah, they do great work. They, they do really great do work. Great and they've, work. Been on, they've been on three or four different passes on the show. Well, good luck on completing your all-important work on the dissertation. Again. Okay, Thanks thank for coming Thank you so down. much. We'll be right back with Melissa Fox, Councilwoman from our city of Irvine, after this brief break. Be right back. was Charlie Hayden, Amazing Grace. I'm sure you all remember the sound of that. Welcome back to the show. My next guest returning to Ask a Leader is Irvine City Council member Melissa Fox, elected to her four-year term last November. Much of Melissa Fox's background I've covered on previous shows. This introduction focuses on her civic service and responsibilities. She's been a member of the Irvine Chamber of Commerce, the Board of Directors of various Beckman High School functions, serves as an adult volunteer of the Sea Scouts. She's also served in the Orange County Parks Ranger Reserve. She's affiliated with the Orange County Bar Association, the Orange County Bar Association Business Litigation Section, and Trust and Estate Section, the Orange County Trial Lawyers Association, the Orange County Women's Lawyers Association Lawyers Club of San Diego, and Women in Leadership. As an Irvine City Council member, these are all the hats she's wearing, she currently represents the city on the Orange County Fire Authority, Community Energy Partnership, Library Advisory Board of Orange County System, the Laguna Canyon Foundation, the Newport Bay Watershed Executive Committee, One Watershed Steering Committee, the San Joaquin Marsh Wildlife Sanctuary, Santa Ana River Flood Protection Agency Commission, the Green Ribbon Environmental Committee, and the Irvine Community Land Trust. Previous to her election to the council, she served on Beth Crom's Community Services Commission for four years. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, now council member, Melissa Fox. Good morning, Claudia. I love being here this morning. Thank you for having me. Well, I always like to get the scoop from our city government officials, and this is our chance. Well, first, why don't you give us a like a brief 
review of your first months on the Irvine City Council? Well, it's really been a whirlwind. You know, on Friday they deliver documents that are sometimes several feet deep for the next Tuesday's council meeting. And uh, so getting up to speed is a full-time job. Uh, of course, it's an honor and a pleasure. And the depth of work needed, for example, on those executive boards, uh, I didn't really realize how much work it was. That's but why I'm I mentioned delighted. them all. So people yeah. can hear how many, how many meetings you're off to besides the ones that are with your planning commission and your human service commission, all that. Well, I knew that we were a great city with a lot happening. Uh, the surprise to me was really learning about how much we're doing in regional infrastructure, for example, on the uh, Santa Ana River Flood Protection Agency, the tremendous work that we did in keeping our streets from flooding and uh, by all of the infrastructure that goes on upstream and of which we are the beneficiary. By the way, we, we that was covered really well over the Headwaters to the Ocean conference that was hosted at the Beckman Center last week. So that's, that's alive and well. Well... Anything behind the scenes surprised you? Nobody's listening but just me. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of behind the scenes that, that surprised me a lot. Now, I was on the C Community Services Commission for close to four years, first as Larry Agron's right. appointee and then as Beth Crom's appointee. And so I got a little bit of a view, but parks and rec and facilities is a little bit different than when you start adding in all the zoning. My surprise was that when, when I was seated in December on the 13th, there was quite a backlog of work. Uh, oh, that was goodness. cascading. So apparently there had been a lot of things that were on hold due to the contentiousness of the prior council. They didn't feel that uh, they're going to be able to get some majority moving things forward. For example, the um, Concordia issue with the modification of the Concordia expansion plans. And then, of course, the um, Wild Rivers and the cemetery, as you know. We'll get into that yeah. when we head over to the Great Park. We're not there And the yet, amphitheater. Okay, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. So speaking of surprises, I, I noticed at the swearing-in last December, there seemed to be quite the partisan pageant going on. I guess that's a snarky word choice pageant, but I was a little taken aback by, you know, so we've got... A, a different kind of majority now. Uh, we have a new mayor and all, but I, I thought that all the people that were brought in, introduced, it was quite, there was high visibility, partisan members of the greater Orange County area. I don't know if that's a feel that is present in daily business and in other, let's say, ceremonial kinds of functions. Well, certainly much like the nation, Irvine has been for a long time very partisan. I think that the partisanship is now taking second place to the personalities and trying to build relationships on the council, working relationships. You know, I'm not talking about going to the movies, but saying, hey, we agree on uh, the importance of gardens in the park. Can we focus on that and move that forward? So that actually has been some of the accomplishments that we've been able to do in the first I guess it's been almost six months. Um, for example, Christina Shea dove right in uh, on Concordia University's expansion that had been approved in 2000 and then really helped craft the restrictions and the modifications focusing primarily on traffic and noise um, and safety of this intersection. So I was very pleased to be able to join with her on that, but my plate was full with the cemetery at that time. And it's unbelievable how much you're trying to get done in 
just a course of a few days when you have to uh, deal with these hearings. Okay, well, let's go to then to, sure. the, to the Great Park. There is, a, I'd like to give you, a, have you give us an update on what is sort of the, the privatization afoot in that, because it's not what was in originally conceived as a, what I would call a public good that was part of Irvine community and the greater county. It's right. Now, it's part of the city, and it's... And this goes back to the agreement that was signed several years ago, which granted uh, 688 acres of, uh, you know, park build and put that on the shoulders of the developer in exchange for close to 5,000 additional home entitlements. And I was very critical of that from the beginning. Um, unfortunately, at this time, that's been signed. We can't relitigate that. And, and it's a very weak um, agreement on the side of the city. We don't have a lot of ways to um, There's no control. to attack it. Well, there is control in that the developers still want to move forward in other areas, so we do have negotiating room. The document itself uh, leaves us with very little recourse when it comes to litigation. So my function now uh, is to get as much value out of those promises as possible. So they've agreed to build amenities. In particular, this is Five Point in Lenar. Right, right. And they're going to build everything that they promised even better, you know. And, and so far, they've been willing to do much of that. Uh, there's a, always a tug of war, and there's always some negotiation. So to the extent that we can as a city um, marshal all of our efforts to negotiate in full strength with the developer, I've been hoping to uh, extract even more value. Value, I want to break that down a little bit, though, because I, it may be more highly valued private amenity, but if you're using a public good as a measure, what can you assure us you're leveraging the builder in control of the Great Park build-out, meaning the, the recreational build-out? What, in terms of public goods, are still secured? Right, and that's a great question. Now, I am one member of a body of, of five. five. Yeah. So what I can promise is uh, bringing my strengths of negotiation to the table, but my focus personally is on keeping access to the park free and accessible and creating passive and active ex uh, space open to all, such as playgrounds, gardens, art experiences, movies, and concerts. And this is where I've focused. So art experiences, t break that down more, because there, there were a lot of cultural amenities early on leveraging lots of interesting opportunities of people, artists that were in the region coming in for, for there were free concerts, there were artists and residents and all that kind of a thing. So what kinds of cultural fair are still in place? Great. We are working on the cultural terrace right now, and this should be the heart of the- Should be, okay. Yes. But say the, what that means. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of moving parts at this time. So we have, we're talking about museums, we're talking about the permanent amphitheater, we're talking about a library, and getting all of these together to work synergistically, for example, to share parking, for example, to take the library space and potentially share that space either with a civic space or and uh, the Museum of Teaching and Learning, the Pretend City Museum. So being able to create those synergies, for example, the library has um, $20 million 
dedicated to it from the county, but that's not really enough to build a great metropolitan library. Pretend City has a grant from the county, and we have the ability to marshal some of our resources to support a complex. And making it a focus of culture for the county really seems doable. I had a great meeting up in Sacramento with um, the Native American Caucus of the Democratic Party and briefly talked with them about the support needed for a Museum of Natural History and Native American Culture. We have a lot of resources that we can bring to bear for something such as that. For example, the Cooper Collection in Santa Ana. The Cooper Collection is home to all of the artifacts and fossils that have been unearthed by developers as they were creating this wonderful county. Wow, wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to take that ex that uh, collection, collection mm -hmm. and exhibit it here? Okay, so what is the promise and what to what extent are you supported by your colleagues on the council to institutionalize a, a vigorous cultural kind of program at that terrace? The best that I can promise is negotiation strength. All right, so and it's not, it's a more unformed than a work in progress then. This, this, right. There has to be lots of noise. Well, for example, the master gardeners have just been terrific in bringing all of their focus to the city council and to the great park meetings with emails. Uh, right now, what we need to do is balance the space and the money available and do some future planning. We're really at the beginning of this. We just got the preliminary plan presented at the last Great Park meeting, and it's very exciting. Now, the next part is how do we dig into those finances? And balancing, for example, this golf course that's um, that I put off uh, approving uh, with my vote, let me say, uh, well, so we can look at the garden aspect. I want to make sure that we have our gardens locked in and that we have a way to pay for it. And I need to see that financial model. That's what I'm doing the next two weeks um, before the next meeting is figuring out, can we, do we need that golf course to support the passive amenities or not? So one thing I've noticed from having covered different slices of the Great Park is the preponderance or the majority of council members in the, since 2013, January 2013, is a lack of awareness of how much this the activity at the the great park generates for the city's treasury and and so i'm thinking it's really an unfortunate underappreciation of what those amenities bring and in making really good public policy decisions for these public goods well and and that's the issue we've seen that the fluctuations of the economy and in particular the fluctuations in sacramento have deep and profound effects on our neighborhoods. So if we do see a downturn in the real estate market, that is directly going to affect the money that's available from the settlement funds um, from redevelopment that we get back from Sacramento, and it will directly affect the assessment district right. funds from Great Park neighborhoods, which is what finances the park. So we have to be ever mindful of that. So if we have a golf course that is kicking off half a million to a million dollars that would support the passive activities 
then maybe that's something we would want to rely upon. But I, I wasn't ready to just move forward and say that's absolutely, you know, what we needed to do until I personally had the ability to dig in and make sure that that's, that was what the balance sheet dictated. Um, and again, as we said, six months and uh, so many boards. I just really felt that I needed an additional time uh, to take a look at this issue. Well, it's good that we can have you on with that with such an early brush here of what's going on. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest here on Ask a Leader is Irvine City Council member Melissa Fox. And we're in the Great Park. I want to pivot to the the solar decathlon that the city was hosting. For It was the first pl- venue away from the Washington, D.C. Mall. So it was a big deal when it was here in 2013 and 2015. And I certainly... When I had the this, the uh, the public affairs office talking about what was going on for the 2015 uh, exhibition, that it was clear that there would be no application filled. He, he was very indirect, but he made it clear that. So we have the deadline. It's 2017. It's going to be hosted in Denver this year. So Irvine obviously didn't get wasn't involved in that. So what is your sense of the application being completed by October, I think is the deadline, for the 2019 Solar Decathlon in Irvine? I was very disappointed with the city's support for the two prior decathlons. We needed additional publication. We needed additional support with transportation. We needed additional support with advertising to let people know how amazing this event was both times. Uh, As soon as it was over, I had people saying, oh, I didn't know when it was. I would have loved to have gone. We just didn't provide the support. And I understand there were offers, the Chamber of Commerce. There were people that stepped and they were turned away by the city. I really want to use this megaphone to make that really known in our community where that opportunity was dropped. Well, and there are two things that I can do uh, as a minority on the council. Number one is use my my position as chair of the Green Ribbon Committee in order to bring forward more awareness and uh, policy choices based on good energy policy, good uh, green planning. And I have we have some excellent resources. We've hired a new environmental planner. And I want to move forward with that. But first of all, before we really apply again for the solar decathlon, we have to make sure that it's supported. The worst thing to do would be to get it back here and once again have it fall short. So at this time, I don't know that I have support from the other council members to do that. And Is it being discussed now, though? Because, I mean, you, you can't just produce a, an application in four weeks or something like that. Now's the time to start putting that together. It has not been mentioned to me at all. Oh, right. Which okay. is we distressing. That. Okay. Yeah. And so the other thing that, oh. again, as a minority uh, council member, I want to push is affordable housing. And as vice chair of the Irvine Community Land Trust, I feel I'm well positioned to work in in uh, creating more affordable housing options here in the city of Irvine. I've already gone to Sacramento a couple times to work with legislators in this area, and I think we're plotting a path to bring online some real affordable housing, which then, when you have affordable housing options, can also impact the market rate housing as well so that we can get relief for everyone that lives in the city. That's a big one, and I knew we weren't going to have an opportunity because I still wanted to work with some the, the breaking news with the the Great Park 
So um, it's yes, Claudia, we could have a show on all of these. Affordable housing is very, very important. It's I want to give it its due, and I can't uh, shoehorn that in, unfortunately, today. But a lot of people on their minds is the Veterans Cemetery, and there was on first track there was the Great Park, the federally approved uh, priority list parcel, and that versus the second proposal, you've puzzled a lot of people with the May city council session where you voted in a majority to consider moving along on the federally approved priority list site and we we all of us want to understand what your vote to offer an alternative track and this is exactly where we get to partisanship versus personalities i have been supporting the veterans on this from the beginning from day one and what we need to do is have a path forward that will actually result in a cemetery and in a cemetery on the land of the former MCAS El Toro. Both sites offer Marine Corps Air Station. Correct. MCAS. Okay. Yes, yes. I'm glad I remember that. So both sites are on the former base. The question is which one will actually get built? And when you see the headwinds on uh, the ARDA site, I wonder if it wasn't understood at the time the land was gifted that that would perhaps fail based on the 77 buildings that had to be remediated. I mean, one of them, you just go out there and look at it. One of them was testing jet engines. It had a, you know, a, a foot-thick wall. And so do, do demolition on this site. And in addition, it, has, it also has burrowing owls, so there are studies and that, that need to be done on this area. The complexities with the ARDA pretty much doomed it. And that's what I was told from the first week that I came on council, that this is doomed, it's never moving forward, forget it. Well, I wasn't comfortable with that. I went up to Sacramento. I talked with Sharon Quirksilva. And then I explored with Five Point. Well, well hey, what are you really saying here? I'll, I told them from the beginning, I will never support entitlements on the ARDA, giving you you know, the opportunity to build more homes. Our growth rate is already oversubscribed. And then the focus on the land planning and the way they were willing, Five Point was talking about being willing to assist with building phase one, swap out a piece of land, and just moving what they had on the strawberry fields over to the ARDA, it's, it started, first of all, it sounded too good to be true. And I was very skeptical. But then when they put it in writing with a, with a, a letter of intent, it seemed like something that we, was worth pursuing. And again, with the ultimate goal of not punishing a builder, but with building a cemetery and having a result for the veterans and having a groundbreaking and an opening of a cemetery. And the space makes sense. I know there's been a lot of uh, talk about how one piece of land is more valuable than the it's other. It's an onion. It's a veritable onion. Yeah. Which which site and what motivations and what attributes? To say that the, the strawberry fields that they want to offer is not valuable land. Well, the parcel next door was sold to Broadcom for 180000 million plus. So, of course, it's valuable. The question is, what's better for Irvine? What has uh, fewer traffic implications and what is better from land planning? And right now it's looking like the strawberry fields. Well, why did your vote change? What I mean, you. Oh, the way it. What was going on then? It's sure. It It, first brush, second, third brush. It looks like a reconsideration in in a different kind of a political alignment. Well, it had nothing to do with any political alignment, it had to do with the merits of the issue. And what happened on the dais was, um, in my opinion, we could have done both. 
So there was a motion to consider uh, the ARDA site and to potentially pledge. Which is the original one. Correct. To potentially pledge $38 million in matching funds to state money. So we would ultimately end up spending close to $80 million to build a cemetery on that site. And I was willing to commit that in the event that that the state would move forward with those funds and we could also secure the federal funding. Okay. However... And there were no promises on the t- uh, on the table at that time. I thought if there was um, the opportunity to do it much cheaper and to save seventy million dollars, then maybe we should that bore investigation. I didn't believe that those two were mutually exclusive. The meme or what was coming down from uh, staff at the city was that we couldn't entertain both opportunities, and we would have to forego the state money if we were even to look at the five point offer. Now, that turned out to be completely false. And I had verified that with Senator Josh Newman, that it was no problem to, con- to make uh, a rational consideration of both offers. And so when the mayor, we voted on the first measure, which was to put the money forward in the event that the state would fund, that was, uh, I approved that and I voted yes. And then in discussions with the mayor, he was not going to entertain the second motion. So therefore, it required voting and amending the first motion because both were on the table at the time. There were two items put forward, okay. one by Christina Shea and one by Jeff Lalloway. And I felt it was possible to support both. They were not mutually exclusive. The mayor had a different interpretation, which is why we went back and did a motion for reconsideration. So I guess to wind this down, well, well no, I can I'm always gonna, come I'm back. Pro- yes, I want you to, and, and as well as other members, is that let's just if we could use as an analogy a line going into okay it's summer almost baseball game all right so let's say there's 200 people in the line so what number is the ARDA priority listed proposal in that line of 200 people versus the alternate well there's 100 um, proposals for cemeteries in the nation and on the ARDA, because of the challenges with the site, uh, it was number 74. <laughs> so that was that was the issue that it not happened. But the line but, is of the two proposals oh. in Irvine. I'm looking at the municipal arena, not the, okay. the federal. Well, we're waiting list. on a commitment from Five Points. But if they come through to uh, give solid assurances that they will help build phase one, which is anywhere from the range of putting forward five uh, to nine million, in addition to swapping out the land, and that's a no-brainer. We save thirty-eight million dollars of city funds that could be put towards the library, the museum, um, the museum's complex, and other amenities that we need at the park, which would be free. All right, I know we've got to come back. We'll pick up where we left off. Maybe we get another council member. We can have a back and forth with that. But it's a lot of people are. It, it's it's really hardening now. That it's getting to be a bit of a trench warfare in terms of what kinds of well, it's a culture war. It's a partisan kind of trench warfare going on, and I I want to do it justice because it's not really getting its due in in the press. Makes it's very I, complicated. It's not an I, easy even issue. Even today, the piece on Irvine in the L.A. Times, I would have written that one very very differently. So we don't even have time to let you uh, tell us whether you were at the Mimi Walters appearing uh, ceremony yesterday that she tweeted she was at. You were there. Did you get a chance to say anything to her? I did. Every time I've met her, I've been able to talk to her. 50 seconds. Okay. What did you say? Well, this time I asked for her support for the cemetery. 
and I we were going to need her to help her. You didn't ask for a town hall. Melissa? No, I did that already. That was the very first okay. thing I did when I met her at the cemetery was to ask her and tell her I would be there to help her with that if she would be willing. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. We're going to come back and do some more together. Thank you, Melissa Fox, City Council member of the City of Irvine. Thanks for coming on the show today. Well, thank you so much, Claudia. Happy to be here. Happy to come again. Okay. That was my wrap. Next week, returning to Ask a Leader is uh, UCI Law School professor and commentator extraordinaire Michelle Goodwin. I'm devoting the whole hour to her. We've got an epic load of work to talk through as identity politics and legal stakes are raised by the hour. 